And as you're being seated, uh, might I take a moment to thank Pastor Aaron for stepping in for me uh, on such short notice. I texted him at 8.30 on Saturday night and said, Aaron, I can't preach tomorrow. Can you please preach for me? Uh, so with just then a handful of minutes of warning. I do thank you so much, brother, for standing in the pulpit for us and for bringing the word to us last Sunday. And I'm grateful to be back here, to be risen from the bed, as I like to say. Um, and once again, we will, we will try one more time to preach this text. So Ephesians chapter 6, if you're not there already, that's on page 1,163, as you can find in your pew Bible. Again, that's page 1,163. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 as we explore the armor of God, the things that he has given to us in order to fight this spiritual conflict that we are in. And we're going to be looking today at verses 16 and the first part of verse 17. So listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. It says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to him and ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this wonderful gift that you have given to us. Lord, I do thank you for faith. I thank you for salvation. I ask that this would be something that we will appropriate on a day-to-day basis. Help us to hear what it says in your word and let us believe what it says. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever heard of the term, or perhaps experienced it yourself, beginner's luck? It's usually something that's being told to you from someone who is very experienced and had to struggle to do what you just did the first time. And it's something that's an uncanny ability to nail something and do it exactly correct the first time you've ever tried it. I think the reason why we see beginner's luck is because when you're first told something and you know you don't know how to do it, you listen very carefully to expert guidance. You follow the rules to the letter. And sure enough, when you do all the things that you're supposed to do, you get the results that you're supposed to get. But what we find is if you continue on this path, the longer you go, it seems like beginner's luck begins to fade. You're not able to do those things as easily as you did the first time through. But I think that's largely because we begin to become confident in our skills. We start ignoring the details, focusing on technique, and forgetting the basics. Well, I think what we have here today is a basic of the Christian life that's really easy to forget about. We hear faith tossed around all the time, but it's something that we can easily forget. Or it's something that doesn't seem special to us anymore. I think this is particularly dangerous if we are more prone to study and less prone to prayer. We begin making this an academic thing of interesting philosophical point. But something that doesn't have relevance to our lives anymore. Well, I'm hoping that we can correct that as we look into this text today as we remember what faith is. So we're going to be answering two questions today. Uh, we'll be looking into 
our outline, which you can see, is that faith is a supreme trust in God. Faith is a supreme trust in God. And then secondly, that faith's power flows from its object. That's what we're going to look at today. So as we begin, we'll notice the emphasis that Paul places on faith and begins by saying, in all circumstances, that we should take up this shield of faith. This is really the only explicitly defined defensive weapon that we have here. This is, or, or, or it is explicitly defined as a defensive weapon. All of them have been except for the sword. And this is something that Paul would have had in mind. It would have been a roughly body length shield made out of wood or metal. And it would have been wrapped in a type of leather that would have been soaked in water. And the main reason for this is because at the time, you people would try to light arrows on fire and shoot them at their enemy for maximum devastation. But of course, if you could have your shield that you could hide behind and stand behind, even if that arrow makes it all the way to your shield, it would be extinguished as soon as it made it right there. The helmet of salvation op- operates in a similar way. It's defending the most vulnerable part of your body, the, your head. And what Paul is wanting us to do here is to recognize what, how we're supposed to defend ourselves against these flaming arrows that it mentions that Satan throws at us. But often I think the reason why we don't use this so well is because we don't really understand what faith is or how it works. In our culture, we talk about the power of faith, and what we tend to mean by that is it's the power of belief. Well, if you just believe something, then you can make it happen. And that's where the power of it comes from. We've all been subject to the power of suggestion at some point or another. Talk about how cold it is in a room and suddenly people start shivering. We say, aha, see, the way that you think is what's going to guide and create power in your life. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not saying that the power to extinguish the devil's fiery darts comes from the the power in your own ability to believe something. Believing something doesn't make it true. Believing away a credit card statement doesn't work. I've tried. Reality eventually has to come to bear. It's not the power of belief, but it's what you are believing in. There have been many examples in Jesus' life, most importantly, I remember one from Matthew chapter 9. It talks about the woman who had the issue of blood. She had gone to all of these doctors and had said and had spent away all of her money trying to be healed of this. Notice that Luke, the physician, doesn't include that particular detail about how much medical expenses are. But instead, after all of this, she comes and she sees Jesus. And she says, if I can just reach out and just touch the fringe of his garment, I will be healed. Was she putting her faith in the touch? Not at all. It was who she was touching. It was that faith that had connected her to the actual power that was there. And that's, I think, what Paul is putting us to here. When he talks about the shield of faith, it's not our ability to believe but it's what that faith connects us, or rather who that faith connects us to. That's an important thing we have to keep in mind. 
a commentator had pointed out in the Old Testament, whenever in the Psalms, in many places, Psalm 93 is one of them, it's not saying that faith is our shield, but God is our shield. So why does Paul put it this way? Well, again, he's making reference that faith is what connects us to God. It's this trust in him is what brings us to him. But what does this look like practically? What does it look like to have a faith and a trust in God? How does this make the difference in our lives? Well, we can find this by looking, and if you'll turn there with me so you can see that it's there, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Gives us a wonderful definition of what faith is and how it works. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This runs so counter to how we live our lives functionally, doesn't it? How do you know that something is going to happen? Beyond the shadow of a doubt. Well, usually it's because it's already happened. Ironically, as I was getting to this, I was reviewing this line and realized I had meant to preach this last week. And if you had asked me on Friday afternoon and said, are you going to preach Sunday? My answer would have been, yes, I'm going to preach Sunday and I'm going to preach this chapter. And sure enough, just a few hours later, I found out I was not going to be preaching this sermon that Sunday. And now here we are. Nothing is sure in our lives. There are always contingencies that are possible. So when we look ahead, if we've lived life for any length of time, we're going to say, it's like, well, this should happen if all of these things occur. There's a reason why the saying is hindsight is 20-20. We're able to see for sure, oh, well, if I had only known that that was going to happen, I would have done this differently. But I didn't. And now here we are. Can only know things that things will happen if we can see them in the past. But faith operates completely differently. Instead of saying hindsight is 2020, faith says that foresight is 2020. What does that mean? What am I talking about with that? What faith does is it looks at the world with all of context. It looks into God's word and sees where this thing is going and says, all right, in light of all that I'm going to see here, this reinterprets how I look at what this moment is now. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory that will be revealed to us. It puts that suffering in context. If we think about it, for those of us that have signed up for surgery, if we were to listen to all that's going to happen to us in that, most of us would think, why are you signing up for that? You're having somebody put you in a state you're going to have to recover from. They're going to do all sorts of horrible things to you, and then you're going to take weeks to recover. Why would you go through that? And you'll say, because I know what the surgery is going to do for me. I'm finally going to be able to walk again. I'm going to be out of pain. So I'm willing to go through this recovery period in order to get to this end. It's exactly what faith does just on the scale of our entire lives. I know where this is going. So that changes how I'm viewing here. The difference is, with surgery, we could go through all that and it'd be worse. 
Some of you have experienced that. You were told, Here how, here's how it's going to go, but then it's been complication after complication after complication. It's a statistical likelihood that you'll be better after surgery, but it's not sure. But that's the difference here. When we look at the promises of God, we know that's absolutely sure. And that we, when we get to the end of this, it's not going to be worth comparing what we've gone through here. Because this is going to bring us a much greater hope of glory. This is the assurance of things hoped for. We can be absolutely sure that God is going to uphold his promises. And more than that, that he is going to actually work through them to prepare us for this good end. It's exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Hear what he's saying there? Not only are our sufferings not worth comparing with what's to be given to us in the future. But it's actually going to be preparing us for that. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book where he, taught, he imagines what heaven would be like. And it's a really actually difficult place for people that haven't been prepared for it. The grass is extremely hard. The water you can stand on. The air feels so heavy to those that have visited it that weren't prepared for heaven. But for those that have gone through the sufferings of life, God had prepared them for this, stripped away those things that were holding them back from enjoying what heaven is. Now, that's not exactly what heaven is like, but he's making this point that these sufferings prepare us for this, to enjoy heaven. That's what these are doing. That's the, the first part of the assurance of things hoped for. But then the second part that we see in Hebrews is the conviction of things not seen. Also not how we tend to work through life. Have you ever had the moment when you get into the car, everything's packed, you've started to back out of the driveway, and then someone asks, did you lock the back door? And in that moment, I am never able to just drive out of the driveway. I always have to go... Put the thing back in park, get out of the car, and go and take a look at that back door. I won't trust my memory. I have to see it to know that this has been done. And that's how it operates in our life, isn't it? To imagine it this way so much of the time when I'm sitting in the car and if, as it were, Jesus were in the front seat and I look at him and say, did I lock the back door? And Jesus will look at me and said, don't worry about it. I've taken care of all things. Functionally, what I do is I turn to Jesus and say, that wasn't my question. My question was, did I lock the back door? And isn't that how we approach Jesus so much? I want to see it. You've told me you've provided for me. You've told me that you look after the birds and the sparrows. You keep track of the grass. But are you really going to look after me? Could I, could I see some receipts of that? I'd like some bank statements to show me that that's the case. 
I'd like to see my children doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'd like to see this medical diagnosis come back clear. I'd like to see it. But that's not how faith works. Faith doesn't need to see. It is a conviction of things not seen. It's looking at Jesus and saying, well, if you say the back door is taken care of, then the back door is taken care of. Now, sometimes what that means is Jesus left the back door open. He needs to teach you something. But as we know, since we're being prepared for an eternal weight of glory, whatever was taken from our house because the back door was left open was something that he intends to teach us. This is the response of faith. Faith looks to a future that we can't see and is still comfortable. Why? Because of the power of belief? No. Because of who we're trusting in. That's what our shield of faith is for. And Satan's whole goal is to get you to doubt that object. Ever notice Satan really doesn't actually like to point out and shake your self-confidence? He would actually prefer that you be more confident in yourself. What he always wants to do is to shake confidence in your God. Asking and saying, it's like, well, maybe God hasn't been so good to you. I mean, if he was good to you, why would he leave you in this battlefield with all these arrows flying around? Wouldn't your general be nicer if he took you off the field? Or maybe if he can't convince you that he's not good, you know, maybe he can get you started with, well, God could have been better. I mean, what do I have is nice and all, but man, if I could just have this, then I would know that God has been good to me, or at least as good as he possibly could be to me. That's always Satan's game. That was Satan's game in the garden, wasn't it? He doesn't point out, hey, you know, he lets you have all of these other trees. In fact, he made this whole place just for you. He doesn't focus on that. Said so he comes down to it and says, look at this little thing he told you not to eat. And focuses on that. Get you to say he's not good. It's really hard to fight for a general that you don't think has your best interests in mind. It's really easy to stop fighting for someone that you don't think cares. So that's exactly where Satan is going to go. And we'll get you to say, can I get you to put your faith in something else? Well, if God's not going to be good to me, at least I'm going to be good to me. I'm going to live the way that I want to do. I'm going to live my life how I see fits. My life, after all, isn't it? And getting us to put our faith in ourselves. That's no shield. There's no protection with yourself. It's with our Lord. It's precisely the moment that we think we don't need to put our faith and trust in God is exactly when we need to. So many times we think that trust in God is for Sunday morning or trust in God is for religious things, but it doesn't actually extend to child rearing or crawl spaces. That instead, it extends to the spiritual stuff, 
but doesn't actually have effect in all the rest of our lives. We're always wrong when we think that. There is never, ever a moment, which is why Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Have this dependence on God. Never drop your defenses. May perhaps you've heard the story of the Union Major General John Sedgwick from the Civil War. This was known in history because of the most ironic statement ever made in warfare. He was told on a particular battlefield morning to stay off of this particular road because Confederate sharpshooters had been ravaging their forces all morning. Well, at some point during the day, John forgot about this warning and began to wander into the street in order to get and retrieve something. His men had warned him that the Confederate sharpshooters were still around and that he needed to not be on the road at that moment. And instead, he turned to them and said, they couldn't shoot an elephant at this dist. He never finished the word distance because he was immediately taken out by the sharpshooter in that moment. The very moment he thought he was safe and out of range, was the exact moment that he was in the greatest danger. And so often that's the case with us. The moment we think that we are the furthest away from spiritual danger, the moment when we think that we are finally starting to get this Christian life thing, that's the moment when we are the most vulnerable. Because that's the moment we begin to trust in ourselves, isn't it? Well, I finally got this Christian life thing because I am doing this, that, Or the other thing. The moment it stops being, Jesus has me. Jesus is caring for me. Jesus is the one who holds my future. Jesus is the one who's guiding my present. The moment it stops being Jesus, that's the moment our faith and shield is dropping. And that's when we become vulnerable. Keep that shield up. But as we draw to a close, let's take a look at our next piece of the armor in verse 17, which tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. This piece operates in a similar way, but it is a distinct piece of armor. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul calls this piece of armor the hope of salvation, and it works in a lot the same way. A commentator by the name of Ian Duguid had put this wonderful illustration together as to how the helmet of salvation works. He says, imagine you go to the mailbox one day and there are two pieces of mail for you. You open up the first envelope and it's a notice. And it's true and accurate that you have just inherited $10 million. All of a sudden, all the things and financial worries of life melt away as you hold on to this letter informing you that you have just had a life-changing amount of money transferred to you. Well, as soon as your hands stop shaking, you put down that one, you pick up the next piece of mail, which contains a parking ticket for $50. Now, in light of the first envelope, how do you feel about the second envelope? Well, it's not worth comparing, isn't it? It's $50 fine. You have infinite resources, or basically infinite, to address this. 
This is what the helmet of salvation is doing for us, is telling us what is coming, that our salvation is in fact secure. And in some ways it operates in the same way that the shield does. But there's something else that the helmet of salvation gives to us that again, Ian points out. It says that this will give us motivation for obedience. This gives us motivation to go out into the battle knowing that this is secure. Now that we, we, can, be, we can be free to risk. We can be free to be obedient because we know we're not going to mess up our salvation. We know that if we go out and try, that we're not going to fail. But the Lord is going to bring us to himself. And it allows us to take these callings, whatever they are. It can be risky callings, packing a backpack and heading off into the jungles of wherever, try to find someone who hasn't heard of Jesus before. It can be risky, or it can be repetitive. Now, many of us, we've started to raise families, and we wake up again and again to fight the same battles again and again. That takes a courage, too. But that's only found when we know that our salvation is secure. If we weren't sure that salvation was secure, then the, then the thought would be, why would I risk this for something else? You've only, you only live once, our culture says. So live it for yourself. Helmet of Salvation reminds us that, there is, that, that we actually don't live once but that we'll live forever, that we can go and we can risk. So how do we apply all of this to our lives? How do we strengthen our grip on the shield of faith and tighten down that helmet of salvation a little bit more? Well, to borrow one last time from Mr. Duguid, he illustrates a young lady dreaming of her wedding day. And she surrounds herself with all of these beautiful things that we can do in weddings. In the imagination, the budget is unlimited and can surround yourself with the joy of this day. And that helps fuel the excitement for that time that is to come. Well, folks, a wedding day is coming for us. There is a beautiful reception in heaven that we are going to. Do you surround yourself with things that remind you of that? Do you dive into his word and seek for those promises that he's given to you? Do you surround yourself with the beauty of Christ? Or do you surround yourself with the things of this world? If you surround yourself with the things of this world, you'll see in time those things don't last. Everything that you hold crumples into dust eventually, doesn't it? And if that's all you have ever surrounded yourself with is decaying dust, well, it's no wonder you don't have any encouragement. You don't spend those times with things that are true, lovely, honest, and of good report. Spend your time reminding yourself of what is really true. It can feel too good to be true, doesn't it? That all of these things that we're going through, it's like, oh, yes, that's going to be worth it. Cancer is going to be worth it. The death of your child is going to be worth it. How can you say that? Because God does. But our minds don't. 
Your heart will not remind you of that. Your brain, our media, your social media feed is not going to remind you of those things. In fact, everything that is around you is going to try to distract you away from these things. Because that's how they make their money. That's how Satan works. Drive you away from the good things that the Lord has done for you and try to focus on those negative things in your life that are also working for your good, just you just can't see that yet. Surround yourself with those things. Make it a practice to counter all of these messages. I forget how many thousands of advertisements that we see every day. I think it's somewhere in the realm. We see 4,000 advertisements a day in some logo or slogan or billboard or image or text, something like that. All of these things are coming at you all the time. Remind yourself of the message that matters. Remind yourself of the things that are beautiful. Start out each day reminding yourself, Jesus came to earth to live the life that you should have lived and died the death and took the penalty that you should have died, but didn't end there and rose from the dead, and one day you will too. Start each day reminding yourself of that. That's going to be the only thing that's going to carry you through this battle. Not faith in yourself, not the power of positive thinking, but the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. Capital T, truth of the gospel. That's going to give you the context to inform everything else that goes on in your life. Without those things, those arrows are going to land. With that shield down, you're going to be vulnerable. Does that mean that you can lose your salvation? No. But it's a lot harder to fight a battle when you have all these arrows sticking out of you. Just ask Boromir. It's very difficult. But keep that shield up. Keep that trust in Jesus. And he will be your sure defense. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to trust in you, to put our faith in you, to be reminded of who you are. And I pray that you would help us to trust in you, to believe what you say, to be assured of your love for us. Lord, I pray for everyone who is here at Knollwood, that they would surround themselves with your good news. That they would not be satisfied with the millions of images and messages coming at them. That we would counter those things with your word. That we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust in you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.